Hey there, I'm Joey Dean, lead pastor of South Lakes Church in Oklahoma City. At South Lakes Church, we exist to be radically devoted to God, relentlessly committed to true community, and remarkably passionate for the lost. We hope your faith is strengthened and you grow closer to Jesus as you listen this morning. Now let's jump into this week's message. Good morning, church. Every time I see the kids leave, I think of salmon swimming upstream. Like if you were trying to come in that door and it's like, see, if you're online, you, you, don't, you miss out on that. But it's just crazy, the amount of kids that flood out of here. Um, so, hey, how are we doing this morning? I'm glad. Hey, thank you. Thank you. All right. For the rest of you that are not doing poorly, what can I do to make your day better? Tap dance? No. Yeah, that was dumb. All right, so hey, welcome everyone. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for joining us online. I'm glad that you're here. Why don't we grab a Bible and I want us to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament and I want you to find Matthew 25 this morning if you're joining us online or if you're more of the digital variety. If you can go to Uversion or if you go to slchurch.life. Uh, there's a button there that actually says Sunday mornings. You can click on it. Everything you need to know is there. I get some sermon notes out. Get your Bible ready. We're going to be diving into the deep end of the theological pool this morning. But before we do, I've got some announcements that I need to make known to everyone. First one is this. Last week, A.J. Stewart stepped off of this stage for the last time as our student minister and stepped into a pastoral residency role at another church. And so we've just been waiting for um, for all things to... to to coincide and, and for him to, to, to skedaddle, all right? So, but um, the elders have decided that what we are doing is that uh, TJ Shin, who he's on the stage leading a couple weeks ago, he's, he's served on staff here before. He just finished up with his Bible degree for Randall University. He's going to be stepping into the student ministry role for this semester, and he's looking for volunteers. And so if you are like, man, I, I would love to hang out with students, all right? He would love to talk to you. And so um, we will... Maybe TJ's in this service. Maybe TJ, if you can be outside for the wherever he is, out in the, in the lobby. And so if you want, want to help, even if it's just bringing food or giving him a high five, anything. He'll take any kind of help right now. And so, uh, so that's the first announcement. Second announcement is this. After taking a year off because of COVID, I'm excited to announce that SL Institute is beginning back up again. So SL Institute is a deep end, heavy discipleship area of South Lakes. And so what we do is this is actually going to be on Wednesday nights now because we have space for it. And we will be starting out this fall with two classes. One I'm super stoked about. We've got a gentleman in our church um, who knows all things Revelation. He's put a lot of time into it. And so he's going to be walking us through the book of Revelation uh, through the course of the semester and next semester as well. And then we will also be offering a class called The Big Story in which we will walk through literally the entire story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and I'll be teaching that class. And then in November, we're going to be offering a four-week course on a Wednesday night called Gospel-Centered Parenting. And we're really excited about that. We have so many young families here, and if you're like me, all right, with four kids all under the age of 10, you're like, man, I just don't want to mess them up, all right? And so we want to focus in on how can we be gospel-centered in our parenting. And then last but not least, 
Today, our loan, our construction loan for our new kids wing um, has rolls over to a big boy loan. And so we start making payments. And I want to just say thank you because of your faithfulness. We actually were not, did not have to take out the full loan amount. And we were able to pay over. And by the way, it was a it was pretty hefty price tag over what we were originally bid before COVID. But because of your consistency and your faithfulness, we were able to pay all the extra expenses and not take out the full amount. And so here's what I'm needing to do, and then we're going to move on with the sermon, is that there are 20 families that consistently give towards um, the Making Room campaign. That's what we call it. And there are 80 families that make up South Lakes Church. And so I am asking that more than 25% of the church please step up and help to give because now we've got to get this thing paid down quickly because I'm going to be in construction mode for the rest of my life, I feel like, here at South Lakes. We're just, we're continually growing. We're, uh, we, we, we hosted over 100 teachers here on uh, Wednesday and Thursday from South Lake Elementary and from John Glenn uh, Elementary. And they were like, oh, how old's your building? And I'm like, well, this, this part's five years old and this part's two months old. And they're like, wow, you've already built that fast? And I go, I know, it's crazy. And I'm losing sleep. And I'm, my bald spot in the back, it's getting bigger, okay? So, and my oldest kid always reminds me when she's over on on top, she's like, man, dad, I can see that mole on your head now. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. Nine-year-olds, they're horrible. Can I get an amen? So um, anyway, so please give towards that. All right. I would greatly appreciate that. And we're all benefiting from that in one way or another. And so those are your updates. I'm done with announcements. Let's get on to preaching. All right. So Matthew 25 is where we are this morning. And we're in the second week of a four-week series entitled Distinctives. And in Distinctives, what we're doing is we're asking ourselves the question, what is it that makes the church distinctly unique from everything else in the world? And so last week, we just charted a course all the way through, the, the, uh, through Acts, the book of Acts, which is the beginnings of the church. And we discovered two distinctives in the book of Acts that set the church apart from everything else. The first distinctive was this, is that the church is a community of redeemed believers who confess Jesus as Lord while submitting to the truth of Scripture. In other words, it's those that say, Jesus, be king of my life, and I want to acquiesce my life to the Word of God. That's the first distinctive. The second distinctive is this. The church is a place where God's presence is evident. I'm not talking about walking into those churches that feel like a funeral home. I'm talking you walk in, you feel this place is alive, and His Spirit can be felt moving in a tangible way among His people. And so those are the first two distinctives that we looked at. And so today, we're going to look at a very odd parable to lay out our third distinctive. So here we are in Matthew 25. Let's begin reading in verse 1. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, 
Truly I say to you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Okay, let's give a little bit of context here. If you back up just a few chapters in Matthew 21, you are going to get where Jesus rides in on the back of a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. And as he's riding into Jerusalem, the people are spreading their cloaks on the road. They're cutting branches off the trees. They're laying down their palm branches and they're spreading them on the road and they're shouting this. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so the word Hosanna literally means salvation or deliverance. That's what it means in the Greek. And so here's what the crowds were saying as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to, uh, to uh, walking on their, their cloaks and on their, their branches. They're saying, here comes our deliverer. Here comes our savior. Salvation belongs to him. Here he is. Blessed is this guy who comes in the name of the Lord so we've, we've named this Palm Sunday. It is the Sunday before, uh, before Jesus' uh, resurrection. And so when Jesus was walking into Jerusalem to the greetings like a king, the people didn't realize that Jesus was way more than just a king that day that he was riding in on the donkey with. And there's no way that they really could have wrapped their minds around this because they were still trying to understand who Jesus was just in and of, of itself. Because just a few days later, the same man that they crowned king of the Jews, they would yell crucify. And so they really had a hard time wrapping their minds around but we know, looking back, that Jesus was so much more than a king riding in on a donkey that day. Jesus was actually a betrothed king or an engaged king walking in. Now, I'm not talking about like Da Vinci Code engagement, all right? I'm talking about something completely different. He's riding in on the back of the donkey as an engaged king, and soon he will be a married king. But the question is, who's he betrothed to? Who's his bride? And the answer, and it's simple, simplest, uh, the simplest answer is this, the people of God are. And you say, well, who are the people of God? Well, the people of God are those who trust him as Savior and Lord. In fact, you could keep boiling it down more and say his betrothed or his engaged is the church. Remember, the first distinctive of the church is this. It is a community of redeemed believers, those that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And so as he rides in on the back of the donkey to the shouts of, here comes our Savior, here comes our Deliverer, as a betrothed king, he was coming for one purpose, and that's to die for his bride. Or we think of it like this, he was coming to put down a dowry for his beloved, and the dowry price was his own blood. And he's going to come a second time, but this time he's not coming to be engaged. He's coming to marry the church and to take the church back with him to his forever home. This is why whenever I do marriage counseling, I do a ton of marriage counseling because everyone seems to get married around here, and I love it, all right? But I always look at Ephesians 5 because marriage is the clearest picture that we have of Jesus' relationship to the church. And so in Ephesians 5, it's going to be up on the screen here. It says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
See, King Jesus came into the world to take a wife. And he paid for her with his life. And now, just like husbands, we're supposed to love our wives so that we are helping in the sanctification process. And wives, we do the same thing as, we lo- as you love your spouse. Jesus, as he's waiting to come back, he's working through his spirit in order to do two things to the bride, to purify her and to beautify her. Why? One, so that she may look more like who he came to pay the price for, so that, he would look more, that the bride would look more like Jesus, but also so that we would experience the joy that Jesus promises when he says that I came that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. And so Jesus came and he paid a price for the church. And then he says, all right, while I'm gone, I'm going to be working through the power of the Spirit, through the church in order to beautify you, in order to bring you joy. And the Apostle Paul understood this and it affected his ministry greatly. And he understood that his ministry was kind of like a go-between between Jesus, the groom, and his church, the bride. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11.2, it's going to be up on the screen here, it says this. Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And so Paul saw saw that his ministry was to introduce people to Jesus so that they could become engaged to Jesus as well and be grafted into the church. Well, we are called ministers of reconciliation today. We are given the same task that Paul and the disciples and the apostles were given. We're called to be ministers of God's word in order to betroth others to Christ. Think about it. We are called to point people to Christ, the Great Commission, right? We're called to go and share the the love of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And when we do that, it creates his bride. It grafts people into the bride of Christ, And then we continue along the road. We call it sanctification, but really all that it is is we're sharpening one another. We're holding each other accountable to his word. And as that happens, we look more like Jesus and it purifies the bride and it brings us more joy. So when we're walking in the midst of of trials and sorrow and sudden, sudden terrors, we have more peace, which surpasses all understanding. And instead of getting big-headed about this, like it'd be, today is six-year anniversary of Southlakes. We've only been six years old today. And in, two, in six years, we've, been, we've built two churches, or we've built two additions. We've helped plant three or four churches. And we're looking to go build a laundromat in the future in, in, in the next couple weeks. That's to come in the future. And we've just fed hundreds of teachers. We, we're, we're doing tons of stuff. You guys are so faithful in giving. And, and I love it. A teacher left on, on Wednesday from Southlake Elementary. And the last thing she said to me is, I just want you to know that your church has an amazing reputation in the community. And when our kids say, ask me in my classroom, where should I go to church? I always say, go to South Lakes. And I go, you don't even go to South Lakes. She's like, I know, but I want people to go to your church. I love that. I love how far we've come in six years, but we have got to be careful to be humble. And one of the most sobering and humbling aspects of the work that God calls us to is this, is that the church is not our own. It's Jesus's. John the Baptist understood this. John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to Jesus, understood that he was not the groom to the bride. 
And so as Jesus came onto the scene, John the Baptist kind of, he went to the wayside. His ministry started to wane and Jesus' ministry started to increase. And Jesus, I'm sorry, John's disciples came to him and said, hey, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about you're kind of going to the backside? You were popular. You were the preacher of the day. And now Jesus has surpassed you. And this is what John said in John 3, 28 and 29. He says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride, he's the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In other words, John's huge ministry, the most successful ministry in over 400 years of silence of God, when God had silence from Malachi until when John the Baptist shows up on the scene. He, he says, no, I, I am not the groom. I am part of the bridal party and the groom is here now and I am rejoicing that the groom is here. In fact, John's disciples, they weren't very happy with that response. So they go, well, let's go ask Jesus. So in Matthew 9, they go and ask Jesus a question. In 9.14, it says this. So the disciples of John came to Jesus and said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? It's a legitimate question. And so Jesus says to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So they want to go, the law says we should be fasting, but you and your disciples don't fast. And Jesus just simply says, don't you recognize that the groom is here right now? I'm here. And the reason you fast is to remind yourselves that you are missing something. It's to, it's to, it's to have your heart yearn for where food, is, where, where food should be. And you go, man, that's right, I'm hungry. I'm remembering that Christ is away. And he says, you don't need to worry about that because I'm here. There will be a day when I'm gone and you can fast then, but why don't you celebrate right now when the, when the groom is here? And what a glorious day it's going to be. Revelation chapter 19 tells us about this day. He says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. So let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride, the church, has made herself ready. And so it was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then it says this, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to, the, to me, these are the true words of God. And this is a description of when Jesus comes back and he comes back for the marriage ceremony. And he comes back for his bride, for the church. And so here's the thing. The church is engaged to the king of the universe who paid the price for her with his own blood. And he will come again to marry his bride and to take her away forever. So this is not in your notes, but if you want to jot this down, here's the third distinction that we need to know about the church. Christ will come back for his bride. Christ will come back for his bride. And this is a very big distinction from everything else in the world. Listen to me. Christ is not coming back for the United States of America. 
And he's not coming back for that company that you worked diligently for breaking your neck for. He's not coming back for your family. He's coming back for his church and only his church. And not every person is gonna be part of that marriage ceremony. In fact, there will be many. In fact, most will be outside wishing that they could get in. So the question this morning is what should the bride, his church, be doing while we're waiting for his return for our wedding day? I'll, I'll, I'll never forget the period. I, I invited um, the period in between when I, 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 um, I, I asked my wife to marry me. It was the beginning of, of senior year of college. My dad, from a very young age, made it very clear, if you're man enough to marry a woman, then you're man enough to take care of yourself and you're cut off financially. And so when Christy and I started dating, I said, I can't marry you until after college, <laughs> all right? I was very honest, all right? And so I waited until senior year and I, I asked her at the beginning of senior year and then began the long engagement period, right? And man, what a busy time that is. You gotta pick out invitations and she's gotta pick out a dress and you gotta find a cake and you gotta find a venue and you gotta do this and you gotta do that. And we do all that. We spent nine, 10 months getting ready for a 15-minute ceremony, right? That's how it works. But man, there was a lot of preparation to do between when, I, when she said, I do, or I will, and, and when we both said, I do. And so what should the bride be doing while we're waiting for the day of our wedding. And this is exactly what Matthew 25 is talking about. So I'm gonna pray, okay? And then we're gonna jump in. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes, even online, would you join me in this? I'm gonna invite you in your heart to say two prayers. Number one, would you pray, God, help me to be present in this moment. And then secondly, will you say, God, will you speak to me personally this morning? And Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus because scripture is clear. There is no other name that we can confidently enter into the throne room of God with. And Father, I pray for your church this morning. I pray that you would meet us where we are, meet those that are broken in the midst of their brokenness and meet those that are in the middle of elation in the midst of their joy. And for everyone who's in between there, God, would you just speak into our heart language would you build us up if we're, if, we're, if we're torn down? Or would you tear us down if we need to be torn down? Father, we submit our lives into your hands and we ask you to speak mightily. That's your son's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. So here's your sermon notes this morning and this is where it comes into Matthew 25, all right? We're literally gonna walk verse by verse through this and our question is, what should we be doing while we're waiting? Okay, here we go. Matthew 25, beginning in verse one again. It says, And the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So the first thing that Jesus does here is he lays out who the bridal party is. So this is where your sermon notes really start coming into play. So understand that in Jesus' day, the marriage celebration usually lasted about seven days, all right? Now, I was ready to be done after our 15-minute ceremony, and let's go to the honeymoon, right? But this lasts seven days, and this story in particular centers on the very first night of the celebration. And so what would happen is the groom would go away, he would add on a, house, a room to his dad's house, and then when it was done, he would come back for his bride, and usually that happened in about a one-year period. And anywhere 
Everywhere during that one-year period, the bride had to always be ready for when the shout of joy came. He's here. He's here. And she would go. And the bride and the groom would take his bride and escort her back to his house, which would become their house. Well, the bride has got word that the groom is on his way, so she sends out her friends to meet him halfway. But since it is night, she goes, don't forget your torches to light the way. Now, a lot of people make a very big deal that the bride is actually not mentioned in this parable. They go, well, we're talking about ten virgins here. Where's the bride? But I'm here to tell you that the mention of the bride is not essential to the point that Jesus is making in this parable. The important thing is this, is that the bridesmaids demonstrates that they were part of the bridal party as a whole. And so your second point is this, that each lady symbolized professed believers and the lamps they were carrying uh, symbolized their outward identity with his church. In other words, each of the ten virgins represented the visible church that the world could see, those who professed to be Christians, those who want to see the bridegroom. And it's very important at this point, and I really need you to store this away in your memory banks because it'll come up in a minute, is that in appearance, the 10 ladies were all indistinguishable from each other. They were all dressed appropriately and they all carried the required uh, tools. They all carried a torch. This leads us to verse two. It says, five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And so now we begin to see some separation happening. And we see that Jesus says that there were five that were wise and there were five that were foolish. Now, I just want to be very careful to say that Jesus is not saying that 50% of the church is fools and 50% of the church is wise. That's not the point of all. It's just an easy way to say, all right, it was split down the middle. The point is this, is that some in the church are wise and some in the church are foolish, all right? So what Jesus is talking about here is this. It's about preparation. You've got to be prepared, right? Preparation is key. And there were some that were wise in their preparations, and there were some that were foolish in their preparation. So let's look at it real quick. All 10 virgins were given the exact same job. Be ready to welcome the bridegroom, be ready. How? Have your lamp ready to go. Now, real quick, when I think of lamp, I think of Cracker Barrel. You know, in the middle of the Cracker Barrel tables and they got those old lanterns? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about like torches. And what they would do is they would soak rags in oil and they would wrap it around the top and they would light it. And that's what they would have been carrying. And the problem is that after a while, the oil would burn up or the rag would burn out, right? And there would not be enough oil in the initial phase to be able to stay lit forever. And this is where we start seeing separation. Because five of the ladies gave very little thought to contingency plans. They never thought, well, what if he's not when we think he's going to come? Or what if something comes up along the way? And so they were giving very little thought to how their current decisions they were making in the moment when the, groom, when the bride said go, how those decisions were going to affect their future situation. And the wise, they thought, well, things could happen. And so it says 
in verse 4, that the wise, they took flask of oil with their lamps. So we have ten ladies, all given the same job. Go greet the groom. All claim to be part of the church. All look the part. They smell the part. They talk the part. Five said, eh, I'll be okay with this. And the other five said, I better bring a backup plan. And this leads on to verse 5. It says, as the bridegroom was delayed, uh-oh, they all became drowsy and they slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. This leads us to the next point that Jesus wants us to understand that the wise ladies prepared for. No one really knows when the bridegroom is coming. And this should not be surprising. Jesus gave us advance warning that his coming, it would be delayed. One of my all-time favorite verses is in 2 Peter 3. I want to show you verses 3 and 4, and then we're going to fast forward to verse 9. It says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And here's what they're going to say. They're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so there's going to be people, I mean, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said, I'm going to come back. And the disciples thought it was going to be in their time. And the next generation thought it was going to be in their time. In my short amount of 40 years of living, I can tell you that the two generations that come before me, they are like, yeah, it's our time. And he still hasn't come. And the generations that are coming after me are saying, no, it's time. And my own generation is saying, no, it's time. And the reality is, that we just don't know. We don't know when he's coming. We think, and we can make calculated guesses, but we don't know. And people will come and say, look how foolish you are because everyone who's gone before you, they have died feeling like this was going to be the moment when they came. And so this is what Peter reminds his readers of. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And then my, one of my top five verses in scripture, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. What's, what's the promise? That he's coming back. But he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. In other words, he wants the bride to be as big as possible. He wants as many people to be connected into the body of Christ as much as possible. And so when these 10 ladies are waiting, they get a little sleepy and they go night-night. And there's no negative connotation that that, that Jesus never scolds them for falling asleep because both the wise and the foolish fall asleep. And this makes sense because in one sense, We can't put our lives on hold while we're waiting for Jesus to come back. Like, we as believers should go about life as usual, but we should eagerly be anticipating the Lord's return. So I've got four girls. I shouldn't shirk my responsibility of being the best dad I can be for them just because I go, well, Jesus could come back tomorrow. Or working a job to pay the bills or whatever. Life goes on The point is not that we stop everything and that it's a sin to to, to work and to be busy about life. The point is this, is that we gotta be ready for his coming and that doesn't necessarily mean that we we just have to quit everything and sit idly by on a mountain waiting for him to come back. And so while all 10 ladies were resting, just as Jesus promised, the groom would suddenly appear without warning. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it's not gonna be up there. It says this, for the Lord himself 
will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So I have this love-hate relationship with going to heaven. Um, I would really like to go to heaven today, and then probably tomorrow I'm like, ah, I'd like to stick around. I would really like to be around when this happens. When you start seeing dead people just come up out of the ground, I mean, sign me up for that. I, just, I, I think that'd be the coolest thing ever, right? But that's how it is. It's the suddenness of it. And at this point, Jesus' parable takes a very sobering turn because now it gets to the root of what he wants us to understand as the church. Yes, he's coming back. But what are we doing in the meantime? Look in verse 7. It says, Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. You know, we live in a very instant gratifying society. We want things very fast. You know, we go to Chick-fil-A and we wait longer than five minutes and we're like, oh, Chick-fil-A's lost it, all right? Um, I went to pick up a Walmart order uh, earlier this week and there was, you know, I don't know, I don't know how often Walmart does this, but there was like a different bag contraption in the thing and we pulled it out and it was like promotional things that they're trying to get us to buy. And so we pulled it out and we're like, oh good, gluten-free Oreos because those sound yummy. And so, and we got all this stuff. And then we got to the thing that I just shook my head it was a cup, like, like a cup of noodle soup, and it was instant pancakes. You pop the top, you add water, you microwave for 30 seconds, and you got pancakes. Listen, let me tell you something, folks. That's not pancakes. That's un-American is what that is. Because in the Dean household, when we have pancakes on Saturday morning, when dad's up for it, it's like at least an hour-long endeavor, right? Because you got to mix everything together, all right? Because we're not doing instant at my household. We're, we're getting it together. We're, you know, it's, it's a pioneer woman or nothing. It's pioneer woman or bust in our house, all right? So we're pioneer woman in. I'm frothing the egg. I don't even know the language. I'm just, I'm doing whatever she says, right? And then I'm making pancakes. I'm flipping them off on plates. And then it's time to clean up. It's like an hour, hour and a half later. Let me tell you what, cup of soup pancakes, that... I don't know, that's like communistic or something. I don't know what that is. That's not how it's supposed to be. But yet, what a great picture of what society wants. How can we go faster? And that's what these ladies wanted. They wanted instant faith. So all 10 bridesmaids, they jump up and they prepare for the groom's arrival. And there's really no difference in how they're preparing. It says that they begin to trim their torches. In other words, they're either putting more oil on their rags or they're replacing their burnt out rags with new oil-soaked rags and then they're lighting them. And then the five foolish ones look at theirs and they go, uh-oh. And they realize that theirs is starting to go out. They're starting to flicker because their oil had run out or their rag had burned up. And they do all that they can. Okay, let's trim it. Let's see if we can squeeze some oil out of the rag that's already in there. But the reality is that they lacked the most essential element to carry out the job. They lacked oil. And so we have five ladies that they looked the part of being part of the processional, but looking the part wasn't enough. It just wasn't enough. And so to the foolish bride maids, they like, well, the obvious choice is this. We should turn to the wise girls. They brought oil. And they ask a very impossible question. They say, hey, will you give us some of your oil? And the wise ones say this, there's not enough for us and for you. This is in verse nine. There's not enough. Now, they're not being selfish here. 
It's not like when my, my six-year-old goes to my nine-year-old and says, hey, Kira, can I borrow that? And Kira goes, no. I mean, it's not that. The point is that Jesus is teaching us a very important lesson. And these are three points, boom, 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 right back to back in your notes. It is impossible to borrow from another's faith. You can't borrow from another's faith. This is why as a young church, right, I, I always say our average age is like mid-30s or younger, okay? And I mean, our, and our SL kids is just is growing leaps and bounds. And I always tell parents, you cannot save your kids. Your faith cannot be your kids' faith. Like whenever I talk to people who come to Southlands, I'm like, hey, tell me about how you came to know Jesus. And when I get the testimony of, man, my parents were always in church and I grew up in church and I just don't know a time when I haven't been in church. And, and I'm like, yeah, but when did you take ownership of your faith? And they stop and they think and they go, I don't know, I just, I've just always believed. And I'm not taking away from that as your testimony, if that's your testimony this morning. But the point is this, is that there are a lot of people that go, I've just always been and so it's expected that I'm going to be in. And Jesus' point is that it's impossible to borrow from another's faith. Just like second point, it's impossible to borrow the power of the Holy Spirit from another. You can't do it. It's also impossible to borrow a life of obedience and faithfulness. And so the wise ones, they answer the foolish one by saying, listen, you can't have our faith. I don't have enough faith to give you and ourselves you can't have the inner spiritual life that we have. I can't create a life of obedience and faith for you just because the bridegroom is suddenly here. You have to bear your own load. You have to bear the own, your own responsibilities. You have to live with the consequences. Remember earlier, I said they didn't weigh out what, how their, their, their present uh, decisions were going to affect their long-term circumstances. They didn't weigh that out. So instead of living a life of obedience throughout the course of waiting for the bridegroom to show up, they wanted to do the impossible. They wanted instant in-time obedience and instant in-time faith. Because what was shown in that moment is that these five ladies had an outward form of religion, but they had no internal power. They had an outward form of religion, but no inward power. I have shared many times that one of the scariest things about being a pastor in Oklahoma is being a pastor in Oklahoma. Because everyone has some sort of adherence to some sort of faith. And you can ask someone, hey, where do you go to church? And maybe they haven't been in 10 years, but they can tell you where they go to church. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to, um, to a lady. She doesn't go to our church. She's on staff somewhere else. And she was talking to me, yeah, I was just talking to one of your church members the other day. And I said, oh, who's that? And I, I can't even tell you what, what the guy's name was. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know who that is. She goes, no, no, he says he comes to all your events that you have. And I'm like, like Pumpkin Fest? Like there's 1,500 people at Pumpkin Fest, right? Like to the egg drop, we had 2,000 people at our egg drop a few years ago. Like, yeah, he's going to all those. But yet he self-identifies with South Lakes. That's scary, because in Oklahoma, it's very easy for someone to say, yeah, I'm a Christian just because I am. And the reality is that Jesus is trying to tell us this. When the Lord appears at the end, there will be many professed Christians who will frantically realize that they lack spiritual life. That they lack spiritual life. 
I feel like most Sundays I try to convince people they're not Christians. I do. I feel like the way. Why? Because I would rather you examine and examine and examine and examine and know that you know that you know that you know. We're walking through this with my nine-year-old. She knows all the answers. She knows Jesus died for her. She knows that she's a sinner. She knows that she needs saving. She believes all those things. She goes, Dad, why can't I be baptized? Like, I'm just ready. And her mom and I are just sitting here going, man, I just want to make sure that you know that you know. I don't want my kid to be a casualty of being a pastor's kid. You know what I mean? Like, those are eternal consequences. And how many people know, but they don't know? So I love Paul's advice to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, this is what it says. Listen very carefully. Paul tells the church, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. You should test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Let me put this into 2021 vernacular. Be sure that you know, that you know, that you know. Don't hang your faith on your parents' coattails or the fact that you go to church. Know that you know, that you knew. No, because there will be a lot of people that in the end will realize that they were self-deceived because they believe that mere association with the people of Christ, aka the church, made them a part of Christ's true church. And as a pastor, sometimes that keeps me up at night. Because I wonder in six years how many people say, I'm part of South Lakes. And in the end, they weren't part of the bride. Look in verse 10. It says, and while they were going to buy the bridegroom, so these are the five foolish ones, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And it's at this point that we see that Jesus paints a very grim reality. And the picture is very clear, is that there will be a finality to the wedding ceremony when Jesus comes back. See, the foolish virgins, they were part of the church. They were, they looked the part, they had their lamps, they had their religion, they had no desire for obedience. They never took care of what was inside of them. They they carried their lamp proudly. I'm a Christian, here's my Bible, here's my South Lake sticker, here's this, here's that, here's here's my, my, my Mardale cheesy Christian, you know, shirt. I eat only testaments, right? I only do these, right? Like, I, I do it all. I only watch Veggie Tales. That's all that I do. And they're proud. And they assume that they have life and faith because of that. But what these five realized that all they had was an empty lamp. And so this led to the most frightening words that a church person can ever hear. Not the world that a church person can ever hear. Because when they show back up with what they think is enough, the, bride, the groom says this, you know what? I do not know you. I don't know who you are. And please understand that the rejection that the groom's giving to the bridesmaids, he's not rejecting that they had a lifelong desire to want to enter the kingdom. 
He's rejecting the fact that despite their outward appearance, they never made the proper preparation for the groom's actual return. And so what happened is that the five bridesmaids who were foolish, they were expecting to be on center stage with their torches lighting brightly the way in the front of the processional. But because they were fooling themselves, the reality is that they were excluded at the end. And so Jesus' warning here is this, is that people will face the dreadful fate that yes, you can know that Jesus is coming. You can know that he's the son of God. You can know that he dies for your sins. You can know you need to be saved. You can know he needs to be king of your life. But you can still miss everything by not taking it seriously, the things that God's word says we should. And this lack of preparedness excludes them from any place among the people of God once the groom returns. Now, I want to be very careful here because I'm not speaking about legalism. This is not a legalistic sermon. This is not a you have to work your way into heaven. This is a a, you will know a tree by its fruit. And how do you know an apple tree from an orange tree? Go pick the fruit and see what it's producing. And so this isn't about you got to work harder. This is about if these things are true, then how is it impacting you outwardly? How are you putting these things into practice? What are you doing? Which leads us to verse 13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Last thing is this, is that we should be spiritually awake. The word for watch in this sentence does not mean that we look out the window. It doesn't mean that we go up on a mountainside and wait. What it simply means is this, is that we need to be spiritually observant. We have to be alert to the fact that Jesus is coming back and that he's given us his Holy Spirit and he gives us to, it, to us in the now to make a difference in the now. And we should use all the means that God has given us to know him better, to love him more, and to trust him. We should be filled with the oil of love, faith, hope, joy. So what do you do with this, right? So, okay, I get it. So the church, the first distinctive, like they are redeemed believers who are gonna submit to the word of God. God's presence is evident and it's moving in a tangible way and that only the church is the bride of Christ. I get it, he's only coming back for the church. But what do I do with this now? I think there's three main things that we do with this. Number one is the grim reality of this. Not everyone who is called to the wedding of the bridegroom will share in it. So I think another way, this is a little wordy, and I, I sent this off to print before I, I, I crafted it better. I, the better way to say this is this, just because you're in church doesn't mean you get to go to heaven. That's really what that means. Just because you're in church doesn't mean you get to go to heaven. Because see, Jesus came to betroth the people to himself, and it cost him his own blood, And so if I'm part of that betrothed family of Christ, if I'm walking in obedience, not perfection, if I'm walking in obedience, I'm striving to do the things that God tells me to do, I'm I'm submitting to the word of God, then there will come a time when he comes back for me and he will say, hey, come home, my beautiful bride. I've built you a palace. Come home. Secondly is this. Christ will come at a time of his own choosing. I don't have to talk about that anymore. I think we understand that. We can't tell God when to come. But here's the big thing, thirdly. There's a call in a believer's life to be constantly ready. Not perfect, but prepared. And we have to recognize that we will all be accountable for our lifestyle, for our priorities, for how we did things, how we parented. 
how we loved our coworkers, what kind of neighbor we were, what kind of church member we were, what kind of driver we were. I just, we're just going to give an account. So I don't, I don't follow a lot on social media. I find it depressing. And um, if I wasn't on church, on, honestly, if I wasn't on staff at church, I mean, social media would be the first thing out, and I would never miss it. I only post church things for the most part. But there are a couple of people that I follow on social media that I really look up to. And a few months ago, um, there was a man that posted the four-generation fade that happens in the life of a family. And I loved it. And I shared this on Facebook, and I, I screenshotted it. I'm going to put it up here. So this is Shane Pruitt. This is the four-generation fade that we see that happens in families. So the first generation, parents don't make church a high priority for their kids. The second generation, kids grow up and make it less of a priority for their kids. The third generation, those kids grow up and make it no priority for their kids. And the fourth generation, those kids grow up with absolutely no concept of God. Now, in all the years that I was in student ministry, and I was in it for a long, long time, this is spot on. Show me a kid's parents, and I can almost always tell you how the kid will turn out. That's the truth. Show me what kind of priorities that their parents are showing to their kids, and I can almost always nail it on how that kid's going to come out. Now, there's no guarantee that you make Jesus first and that your kids are going to come out making Jesus first, but man, you give them a lot higher fighting chance moving forward. You do. And the reason that I share this is because, once again, how young we are as a church and the fact that almost every single person in this room has at least one kid, if not four. <laughs> Yay. Um, so, right? And so you got a lot. We, 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 there's a lot of people that we are responsible for as parents. And when the time comes and I stand before the Lord, let me, let me back up. So we watched a lot of the Olympics um, when it was going on. And I love it. Everly, or Kira, my oldest, she's nine, um, would sit and we, would, we could watch anything. We could watch equestrian, we could watch fencing, we could watch swimming, we could watch um, paddle boating, I don't know. And she would turn to me, and it doesn't matter what was on the screen, and my, my nine-year-old would look at me with the utmost confidence and say, Dad, not only could I do that, I'm going to the Olympics and I'm going to be the best. <laughs> and I said, do you even know what fencing is? She's like, yeah, it's like sword thing. I was like, yeah, okay. But she meant it. She meant it. My six-year-old's learning uh, uh, to read. So my nine-year-old, uh, very, very smart girl, but man, mom and dad um, almost lost all their hair trying to teach that girl to read. She was just stubborn and just couldn't do it. And so Friday, uh, Christy goes to the library and gets, I don't know, one of those Sam books. I, I don't know what it's called, right? And so Everly, my six-year-old, sits down at the table or sits down on the couch, and, and Christy says, my wife says, hey, let's read. And so it was just like, hey, Sam fed the dog. The dog was full. What is Sam going to do now or whatever? You know, that's too complex of a sentence. But here's the thing. Man, my six-year-old nailed it. And we're high-fiving and we're like, whoa, maybe we won't lose more hair over this one, right? We're like, yes. Here's the reason I share that. I want my kid to be an Olympic fencer one day. That would be cool. And I will cheer her on. And I want my six-year-old to be the best reader that the world's ever known. My girl's about to start soccer, my oldest. I want her to score 50 goals this season. I want, her, I want the best for my kids. But when the time comes and I stand before the Lord, I will not give an account for how many A's they had 
how many goals they scored, how many Olympic medals they won, or how fast they could read. I will give an account for how did I point my kids to Jesus. And as a parent, there is nothing weightier, in my opinion, than how do we shepherd our kids well? And how do I give my kids a fighting chance? Because the world that we know now is going to be worse by the time they get to our age. And how do I give them Jesus now so that they have a foundation that will not crumble, so that when I stand before the Lord someday, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. We will all be accountable someday. And listen, and please listen for the heart of this pastor as I say this as lovingly as I can. Quasi-Christians who attend semi-regularly and give lip service without living in obedience have to be aware that you are playing games with your eternal destiny. You are playing a game of Russian roulette and you will lose. You will lose. And eternity is at stake. Christ is coming back for his church. And the church are those that are true believers, that are redeemed, that are bought by the blood of the Lamb, that don't just say it, but they live it. The question is, are you part of the bride? Are you part of the bride? Because there's only one thing that Jesus is coming back for, and that's his bride. Nothing else. Not your sports team, not your work. Nothing. He's coming back for the church. And I want to be part of that. You know why? Because let's say I live to 85. I'd love, you know, 85 is a good ripe year, I think. Unless I'm looking at eternity. I choose eternity every day. Let me pray for you. Father, I come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. And Father, I pray for the bride of Christ this morning. Father, one of the greatest distinctives that the bride of Christ has is that she is the only thing you're coming back for in the end. And Father, for those that truly are believers, that truly not just say they are, but they strive to not live a life of perfection, but they strive to live a life of saying, man, I want to just keep moving forward to look more like Jesus. That's who you're coming back for. That's who the church is made up of. Not perfect people, forgiven people. Empowered by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so Father, I pray for two different types of people in this room this morning and for those that are online as well. First off, I pray for those that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they, they're believers. They've given their life to Jesus. Jesus is king of their life, that they are part of the bride of Christ. God, I pray for encouragement for them to continue to advance that ball down the field, to continue to make much of the name of Jesus, to continue to be salt and light in their kids' peewee football games, on the PTA board, in their own living rooms, at work, on the road, at church. May we be salt and light. May we be ambassadors like Paul saw himself to share the good news that we have so that others could become engaged.
to the groom. Father, secondly, I pray for those in this room that, I don't know, they're just doubting. They're iffy. Iffy at best, Father. I pray that today, I don't pray for conviction. I pray for a shattering of their hearts. That they would know that they are playing a very dangerous game of Russian roulette. And the only outcome is to either give their lives to Jesus or to await an eternity separated from you. And Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. You tell us very plainly that if we confess with our mouth, if we believe in our hearts that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came and he died for us, that he rose from the grave, you promise us in Romans 10, 13 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation for those online and those in person. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I always like to give some wrestling points for you to wrestle with the Lord about. So here's your first wrestling point this morning. If you say, no, I know I'm part of the bride of Christ, then my question is this for you. How are you doing at sharing the hope that you have inside of you with those people that are closest to you right now? Not in the room, but I'm talking about those people that God's placed in your life. How are you doing at that? And I would encourage you here in a moment to talk to the Lord about how you're doing and ask him how you can do better. Secondly is this, if you would say, you know what, I don't think I am engaged to Jesus, then I would say that today, would you wrestle with the Lord and would you give your life to him? Would you just simply confess that you are a sinner, that you don't deserve forgiveness but you're so grateful that he died for you? And would you ask him to forgive you and to come be king of your life? Would you tell him that you want to be engaged to him? And you want to be a difference maker in this world as you wait for his second coming? Every person fits into one of those two categories. Would you wrestle with the Lord over these two questions? I'm going to stand over to the side if you want to come talk to me or you want me to pray with you. I would love to do that. I'm going to be on my left, your right. When you're done wrestling over those two questions, how can I be salt and light? How can I be a witness to those around me? Or I need to give my life to Jesus. Would you stand and join Grant and the band as they sing? But not until you're done wrestling. Father, would you work in, the, in this room right now? Would you work online? shatter lives change us for all eternity thank you for second chances thank you for 15th chances thank you for millions of chances thank you for not giving up on us church wrestle with the Lord over those two questions and then join the band as they say great let's go ahead and sing thanks again for listening to this message for more information about South Lakes Church go to slchurch.life